in one of the most interesting passages in James, one of the most graphic texts in the Bible. <laughs> James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now as we come into the final chapter, I think it's worth remembering a bit of how the letter unfolds, but especially how the letter begins. It's been a while since we were in the first chapter, so maybe you could think about it. Do you remember how James opens the letter? Remember what he does? How he challenges the readers from the very second verse about how they respond to the hard times of life. It says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so one of the things that you find from the very beginning is that the majority of the readers of this, of this letter, the original readers, were going through serious hardships. Many had been forced to flee for safety from Jerusalem to try to find some way to make it outside the city. And then what you find, if you keep reading, is that many of these poor Christians had been suffering specifically at the hands of those with power, influence, and money. Many of the readers had apparently found whatever work they could, maybe uh, especially uh, taking care of land for wealthy landowners, and it's those landowners who are the source of much of the suffering that they're going through when James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And I just wanna, I want you to see this because it's been a while since we've been in some of these texts, but it'll help you be prepared at least a little bit for what James is gonna say in James 5. So for example, look at James 1, verse 9. James 1, 9, he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he, that, that rich man, will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So from the very first section of the letter, James is trying to encourage poor brothers and sisters that they are not forgotten that they still matter to God, and that the rich, a.k.a. those who are oppressing them and abusing them, misusing them, will soon fade away. And in the next chapter, if you look at James chapter 2, it gets even more graphic of like what exactly are the rich, a.k.a. those who are oppressing the people in the letter, what are they doing? Look at James chapter 2, verse 5. And, and if you remember, this is where James is actually warning the church about not showing favoritism toward the rich and against the poor. Look at what he says. This is in James 2, verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And then look carefully at what he says. Are not the rich 
the ones who oppress you, who drag you into the courts, aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you've been called? And again, I bring this up because it's been a while since we've been in those texts. And and those two texts prepare us at least a little bit for what James is going to say in one of the sharpest and most scathing passages in the whole New Testament. Let's look at it. James 5, verses 1 through 6. He comes back to this at the end of the letter. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now that is an intense passage right there. You'll, You'll have a hard time finding anything like that in any other New Testament letter. So what exactly is James saying? in this text, and what's going on in the situation that would lead him to talk like that. I don't know if you've ever thought about this text or not. I think James is pretty familiar, you know, to, to a lot of Christians. It's a book people like to read, a short book, but this text in particular, I'm not sure many of us have really thought about this text a lot. But I love texts of the Bible like this because they really force us to think They sort of jar us because they're so out of the ordinary. They seem just a bit beyond our grasp at first. And so they lead us, maybe to pray, I hope, to really chase after God's truth. Like, what is God saying in this text to us? This is one of those kind of hard texts. And so I'm I'm looking forward to just thinking through it together. And I kind of want to guide us through this just by using four questions through the text. And so the first question is coming back to something I've already talked about a little bit, but who are the rich in the passage, right? When, when he says, come now, you rich, weep and howl, who is he talking about? Now, we saw the other two times in James where he talks about the rich, right? And it wasn't pretty there either. But here it's even worse. I mean, calling them to weep and howl. Have you ever told anybody that. Use those as imperatives to people. You better howl for the miseries that are coming your way. And then he condemns them repeatedly in the passage. And the imagery is so graphic. Like their riches are rotting. Their clothes are moth-eaten. And the wealth that they have will, will somehow eat their flesh like fire, like the corrosion or something. So so what is going on? Who are 
the rich. And, and the, the thing I want to make clear first is that I believe these are unbelievers. These are not people in the church. These are unbelievers who have great wealth and power and who are misusing that power to oppress the vulnerable Christians that James loves. And this fits right in with the other two references to the rich in James. Remember how he says, these are the people who oppress you, who drag you into the courts, like they have legal power, influence, and they blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to. So to summarize, just many of the Christians that James is writing to are very poor and are going through really hard times and one of the major trials that many of them are facing is specifically the horrible treatment that they're receiving at the hands of some very wicked, very powerful people. Referred to by James simply as the rich. But this then leads us to another question. Can you think of what a, a good follow-up question would be? If, if it's the case that this is addressed directly to the rich who are unbelievers, not in the church, what might you ask? What do you think? Like, Why would James speak directly to people that are never going to read this letter, right? I mean, isn't that like a legitimate question? Isn't that a problem to just speak so directly to people that realistically will never hear or see or read this letter? Have you ever thought about that before? The first thing that I would point out is that this actually happens a lot in the Bible. But mostly in Old Testament passages that we're not very familiar with. So maybe we're not that familiar with it. But, but for Jewish readers, this would not be at all surprising. Okay, These are Jewish people hearing this. And if you're wondering about where you might see this sort of thing, I'll give you one example. Okay, Just one good one. It's 11 chapters long in Isaiah. Okay, You could go and read Isaiah 13 to 23, and basically, for 11 chapters, this is happening, okay, right in the middle of Isaiah. And it's worth taking a look at just a little bit of that, in case you're not, I'm not expecting all of us to be really familiar with all of these oracles about the nations in Isaiah. There are lengthy, multi-chapter sections like this in other Old Testament books, too. But we're, these aren't usually our choice, you know, when we're just going and reading passages of the Bible. But I want you to see this at least at the beginning in Isaiah 13 to 23. Look at Isaiah 13. And you'll see how it starts. Isaiah 13, verse 1. So I want you to see it, because, I, again, I don't know that we're super familiar with these passages. But it starts this section where, like, each section starts with the oracle concerning some other really bad people. Okay? Like here, the oracle concerning Babylon. And then there'll be this judgment pronounced against them for their sins. And then we'll read things like, for example, in, in verse 6, Isaiah 13, verse 6. We'll read things like, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty 
it will come. And in case you're wondering, the word whale is the same one used in James 5, verse 1. And in fact, that word shows up some ten times in just that section of Isaiah. Announcing impending doom on one nation after another. And my point right now is, did Isaiah actually think that Babylon or Assyria or Philistia or any of these other places would actually read or hear those oracles? I doubt it. But yet Isaiah and many other prophets still denounced all of these nations. Why did they do that if those people weren't going to read it? And not surprisingly, what James is doing isn't just reflective of the Old Testament. It's just like what Jesus did as well. And perhaps the best example of that is, is when Jesus pronounced woes on several cities for their unbelief. Do you remember that? That'd be more familiar, maybe. Like in, like in Matthew 11 would be a good example, where, where Jesus says things like, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. He's pronouncing judgment on them because they wouldn't respond to him. But my main point right now is those cities weren't all able to hear what Jesus was saying when he was pronouncing those woes on them. So why did Jesus say those things? Who was around when he said those things? It wasn't those cities. It was his own disciples who were hearing him say those things. Why did he do it? And it leads us to the key idea here about this. Those words of condemnation by Isaiah or other prophets or by Jesus weren't spoken only or perhaps even primarily for the good of those other people. Those words of condemnation were designed first and foremost to help whom? Which people? The people who would hear the words. The people who would read them. And so you bring it back to James. And say, Here, here's the deal. These words of condemnation directed at the rich oppressors aren't primarily for the rich, who would probably never read them. Those words are given first and foremost to help and instruct those who would read those words. Namely, the poor Christians who were suffering under the cruel hand of the rich. And then that leads us to the third question. Okay. <clears throat> what were James's actual readers like supposed to learn from those words then? Like if, if they were pronounced and given for their benefit, what were they supposed to get out of them? Okay. So, be, now before we answer, I want to I look a little closer at the words. So would you look with me back at James 5? And I, I want to I see it again. I've read through it once, but now I just want to look through it one more time so you get a feel like, what is he actually saying? And then you can think, okay, what were they supposed to take away from that? So look at James 5, verse 1 again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. I mean, just think about what he's saying. He calls them to weep and wail because the judgment's on the way. And did you notice what he says about their wealth? The riches 
and possessions that they treasure are rotting. But not just that. The gold and the silver that they're hoarding are corroding or rusting. And James says that's going to be evidence against you on the day of judgment. The very treasure that they've stored up and taken such pride in will be a witness against them, testifying against them at the judgment of their selfishness and their greed and how they've abused their power. And But as bad as that is, it gets worse in verse 4. When he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached into the ears of the Lord of hosts. The, these rich people have been living in luxury while at the same time withholding the wages from poor Christians who needed even to survive. They've used their power to oppress the poor, unjustly condemn them in verse 6, perhaps even in the courts, through their unchecked power. James even says in verse 6 that they're responsible for the murder of some. Whether they've done that directly by force or whether indirectly through withholding the wages that they need to survive and their families need to survive, it doesn't really matter. They've used their power to crush the weak. And what have these poor Christians been doing? Do you see it in verse 6? They haven't been revolting. You see it in the last phrase of verse 6. He, he does not resist you. They haven't been rebelling, even though it would seem like they have every right to. Why not? I mean, realistically, maybe they, there was nothing they could do about it. They had no, nothing to do. Or maybe some of them just willingly chose to take the path of Jesus to endure the suffering, the injustice, and the mistreatment. But don't miss this. They haven't been silent either. They've been crying out to whom? To God. They've been crying out in the midst of their suffering. And what does James say? Listen. The cries have reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. And the picture James uses of what God's going to do is graphic. The rich live in luxury, indulging themselves in whatever they want. But James says in verse 5 that they're just fattening themselves for the day of slaughter. They're like the calf that keeps get, getting fed more and more in its final days before the master is going to come and slaughter the calf. So this is what James says. But that brings us to our question. Back to the question. What were the readers supposed to do with that? Like, it's, this is for their good. It's for our good. What do you think? Can you put yourself in their sandals? You know, what, what if you were the one being oppressed, being misused, being abused, even though you were in the right simply trying to please Jesus and survive. 
What do you think you might walk away with after hearing those words? Here's a couple things that come to my mind. Perhaps I would remember from hearing these words that God hasn't forgotten me, even though I've been mistreated. God has seen it all, everything I've gone through, and he's heard all my cries for help, for rescue, for justice, as I've poured out my heart to him. Perhaps I'd remember from hearing these words that God is the only one I'm supposed to fear. I mean, don't you think your tendency might be to fear the rich in the text who have the money, the power, and the influence to do whatever they want? But then you hear a text like this, and what do you remember? There is only one person who's able to save and to destroy. And it's no rich person. It's God himself. And when the Lord of heaven's armies starts to move, no one's going to be able to stand in his way. And perhaps I'd remember from hearing these words that I'm actually better off knowing Jesus and having nothing than not knowing him and having everything I think I want. I mean, don't you think your tendency might be to envy the power and the money and the influence of the rich. I mean, you could do whatever you wanted. You could have whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted it. But then you read a text like this, and what do you remember? I shouldn't envy them. Because we're all headed for the same judgment day. And nothing they've put their trust in is going to save them on that day. We're all headed for the same judgment day. But they're headed there to receive wrath and retribution. Not salvation. They're headed there to be banished. Not welcomed home. You see, maybe I would remember I'm actually better off knowing Jesus and having nothing than not knowing him and having everything I think I want. Those are maybe just, I'm trying to think, like what, what might I hear if I were in their shoes? And then this, really le- this leads to my last big question for today. What, what are you going to take away from the text? From such an out-of-the-ordinary kind of text like this. I'm going to share a couple of things I'm, I'm thinking about my own life, trying to put myself in the place of the, of the hearers and then just thinking, okay, in my context, our context right now, what, what are we supposed to hear and take away from a text like this? Okay, here's like one thing I'm thinking about. Don't hold on to your possessions tightly. And certainly never put your hope in money. I mean, that picture in this text of the judgment, of judgment day, is so powerful. I mean, imagine standing there before Jesus and having all sorts of gold and silver hidden away, stored away, signs of how much you've been blessed with, how much he gave to you, and then to see it on that day rotten and rusted because you never used it for him, for his people, for your neighbors, for the oppressed and the needy. And I just hear Jesus saying, maybe you hear it, lay up treasure in heaven 
where moth and rust will never destroy and where thieves will never break in and steal. Second thing I've been thinking, we need to praise God more for the justice of God. There is coming a day when God will make all things right. And, and now certainly we long for just laws and just leaders and just punishments, even now. But one of the key points of this text is that there's coming a day when God will make all things right. Not one act of injustice will ever go unpunished. Every sin will have its just reward. And I've been thinking about the last month, just over a month ago, May 25, we witnessed a terrible abuse of power, an unjust killing of a precious man, George Floyd, in our own city, a man made in the image of God. Will justice be served here? Our hearts cry out for justice, and that's right. God's put that within us. Since then, over a hundred people have been shot in Minneapolis, including at least eight fatalities the last time I checked. And it's not seemingly slowing down at all. And our hearts cry out for justice, and that is right. God has put that within us. Will justice be served in all of those heart-wrenching situations, many of which I don't know the details about? We hope so, and yet we really don't know. But I know this, that there is coming a day when God will make all things right. Not one act of injustice will ever go unpunished. But that's just what's happening close to home. Stories of oppression, injustice, and violence, especially against other Christians around the world, are happening day after day, and we never hear about it. Or if we do, it's just buried in the news that's right around us. I mean, here's just one example that I've come across. During the protests and the riots that were spreading in our city and around our country, on June 1st, over in Nigeria, a Christian pastor named Emmanuel and his pregnant wife, Juliana, pregnant with their ninth child, were working on their farm in Nigeria when suddenly they were attacked by armed men who murdered them both. And that is, in fact, just one part of a larger direct war against Christians in Nigeria. Will there ever be justice here for them? Our brother, our sister, who were targeted specifically for their faith in Jesus? I don't know. Doesn't seem likely to me. But there's coming a day when God will make all things right. From the blood of righteous Abel in Genesis, which cried out for justice, to the cries in the book of Revelation of the martyrs who cry out for justice, we realize the world will always be full of injustice, so much of which will never be dealt with here. 
But we learn from a text like this that none of it will ever be overlooked by God. He sees it all, knows it all, and so we ought to praise God for his justice. Justice belongs to him. And lastly, as I've thought about this text this week, I think we ought to praise God for Jesus, the righteous judge who's also our only savior because it's always hard for me to talk about the justice of God. I love that God is just. I praise him for it. But yet, do you ever feel in your heart, like when you're like, God, exercise your justice against this, that sinner? Don't you feel something when you say that too, where you're like, but, but God, I know, I know I'm a sinner too. Do you ever feel that? We praise God for his justice that all judgment has been entrusted to Jesus. But at the same time, we know that if we got everything we deserved, we would all be justly condemned. This is not to say we've all done all the evil that we could possibly do. But who among us has never misused our own authority? Or has never misused our own money? or has never taken advantage of another person, or has never harmed another person made in the image of God, or has never been greedy, or has never hated another person in our hearts, which Jesus himself calls murder. If God were to hold all our sins against us, who among us could stand? There's not one of us who could stand. And so we remind ourselves as well today, of the mercy of God. Not a mercy that is cheap, one that is costly. Not a mercy that just overrules or ignores the justice of God. That's not the mercy that's shown in the Bible. Now, at the cross, in the sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus, we behold the fullness of the justice and mercy of God. Christ died for us to pay the just penalty for our sins so that if we repent and look to him for mercy, we can be pardoned. So we remind ourselves today not only of the justice of God, but of the extravagant mercy of God, a mercy that's so wide and so deep that God has made a way for even the vilest of sinners to be forgiven. There's no one beyond the pale. I, think, I was thinking back just through the Bible. It's a little bit about this. And I think of the thief on the cross. He was a murderer. An insurrectionist who cried out for mercy from a repentant heart at the last moments of his life. And Jesus forgave him and saved him I think of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the extortioner, who had hurt so many people. Jesus sought him out, saved him, and changed him. I think of David, the king, whose authority and power was unmatched in the kingdom. And what he used it for. He committed adultery with the wife of one of his soldiers, 
And that soldier was so faithful, David couldn't get all of his plans fulfilled, so he arranged for the death of his own soldier. And yet today, David's sins are all gone. They're all paid for. He repented, cried out for mercy, and God forgave him because Jesus died for David's sins. I think of Paul, who stood there watching an innocent, righteous man, Stephen, getting stones thrown at him. And he stood there and he watched until Stephen breathed his last. And Paul approved of it all. He did nothing to stop it. And yet he too found pardon. One day, in the blood of Jesus, Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners. See, God's people are all, from the greatest to the least, blood-bought sinners who all deserve death for a variety of reasons, but who get in Jesus what none of us deserves, forgiveness and life because of the only truly righteous one who willingly did not resist, but gave up his life for us all, who bore our disgrace and died in our place on the cross. So I say, praise God for Jesus. He's our only hope at the judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a sharp text that forces us to think that stirs us because of how different this text is than what we see in most of the letters. I pray you would do your work in our heart through this text of comfort, of conviction, of whatever it is you want to do. Pray take these this feeble effort to communicate your truth about who you are from this text. Would you, would you just plant it deeply in our hearts and produce in us all that you desire in the week ahead. We praise you for your justice, for your mercy, and we praise you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for bearing our guilt. Thank you for rising victorious and giving us the sure hope of eternal life. In your name we pray, amen.